Hello, APUSH students. I'm Mr. Blacketer, and I'm going to talk to you for the next few minutes about one of the most famous events in American history, the Salem Witch Trials. I was lucky enough to take an entire college class on witchcraft, although we made zero potions. College is weird. You will love it. It's just as important here at the beginning to explain what we aren't going to do. We aren't going to dive into tremendous detail on each and every name of the more than 200 accused, nor will we linger on the minutia of Puritan doctrine. Our goal is to understand what happened in Salem and what it represents about American history. I'll tell you the story of how things got started in Salem before zooming out to see how it fits in a larger context, why it might have happened at all, and what it means for us three centuries later. Over 300 years ago, 24 people died in the throes of witch hysteria in and around Salem, Massachusetts. This was no brief chaotic moment. Accusations and trials went on for 14 months, or about twice as long as it has been since school first closed. Puritan New England was going through more than a bit of upheaval that we'll explore more later on. For now, suffice it to say that a deeply religious group of people were afraid for their economic, political, and spiritual lives. They were all too willing to see the devil around every corner. In February of 1692, Betty Paris, daughter of the controversial local minister Samuel Paris, began acting strangely. Betty and her cousin Abigail Williams would suddenly and randomly scream in pain, knock over furniture, and twist themselves up into uncomfortable postures. They hallucinated, had intense digestive issues, and seemed to experience seizures. Both girls initially said they felt like they were being poked and pricked and prodded constantly, and no medical intervention of the time seemed to help. As word spread quickly through the village, two other girls suddenly began to exhibit the same symptoms. By March, Reverend Paris and the rest of the town were growing more worried by the day. While meeting with town leaders about how to proceed, Reverend Paris left his daughter and niece under the care of his slave Tichiba. Tichiba was a South American slave who had lived the vast majority of her life in the Paris household. Every bit of evidence suggests she was gravely concerned for the girls, and in that moment of doubt, Tichiba turned to a practice not welcome in the town of Salem. Tichiba collected a sample of urine from both Betty and Abigail before baking it into a biscuit and feeding the biscuit to the family dog. The witch cake, as it was called, was meant to pass the curse or affliction from the girls to the canine. In Puritan Salem, however, this was an unacceptable practice to occur in the home of the town minister. Samuel Paris was furious and turned to local authorities to begin making arrests. There had been small accusations of witchcraft in the village in the years prior, and young children suffering from such pain seemed to be yet another instance of the devil trying to chip away at the foundation of this city upon a hill. The first person arrested was Sarah Good, a poor woman largely hated by the town. She was left penniless after her husband died and left her with a large debt. Sarah would often approach people in Salem to beg for a small bite to eat or a place to sleep, and would walk away muttering to herself if she was left empty-handed. Sarah Good was an outsider through and through, a dangerous thing to be in a society built on the bedrock of conformity. Sarah Osborne was the next to be brought in for questioning. Sarah Osborne was infamous in Salem for quickly marrying an indentured servant shortly after the death of her well-to-do husband. Even worse, Sarah held on to the property left to her by her late husband instead of transferring it to one of his sons. Worst of all, Sarah was often sick, so she rarely attended church meetings. Both Sarahs, protested loudly and logically, pointing out that if they had such fantastic powers as witches, they would be able to free themselves or gain some sort of fantastic wealth. It was Tichiba's testimony that transformed this from a simple local trial into the lasting scar that it has become. Under Puritan law, it was required for a learned religious figure to help accused witches prepare for trials. 
In the case of Tituba, Samuel Paris helped her prepare by beating her savagely the day prior. Furious that Tituba had turned to superstitious practices instead of the Lord, Reverend Paris certainly gave her something to worry about. Tituba's testimony over the next several days remains fascinating for its storytelling and development. Initially confused and reluctant to speak, Tituba began to tell tales of seeing a tall, dark figure that could transform into a dog or wolf. She said that she saw the Devil's Book, and in that book, she saw the names of at least three other witches. Under questioning, three quickly became five, and five became nine, but Tituba couldn't name all the names because some women simply left a mark instead of signing. She had seen women fly around on sticks, and she knew that Sarah Good had signed a contract with the devil and could turn herself invisible. After Tituba's testimony, Salem was a terrifying place, full of terrified people. More girls came forward with symptoms, and slowly the interrogated witches named names of those who had participated in their demonic meetings. By the time Sarah Good was hanged in July, dozens more had been named and thrown into jail. Sarah Good, pregnant at the time of her arrest, had given birth in jail but lost the child, likely due to the extremely poor medical care for the accused. When they put the noose around her neck, Sarah Good threatened Nicholas Noyes, the reverend overseeing the proceedings. God will give you blood to drink, she told him. Noyes died 25 years later, choking on his own blood. 24 people would die in Salem from the chaos that emerged in 1692. But why do we still care? What was special about Salem? Witch hunts were not unique to the colonies. Witches appear in ancient stories, and some are hilarious, like when Apuleius tries to become a bird but wakes up as a donkey. Others serve as a warning, such as Saul reaching out to a medium before being condemned for doing so in the Old Testament. In the midst of the Reformation, Central and Western Europeans were all too ready to see the devil. The numbers are uncertain, but most estimates put the total death toll around 55,000. For most of those European witches, death was a welcome end. The court-sanctioned torture process was unrelenting and brutal. Accused witches, left alone and starved for three days, were then brought before a tribunal for questioning. A confession could lead to a merciful death, or the much more painful burning at the stake. To get the confession, inquisitors started with the thumbscrews. The woman, likely a villager who had earned the jealousy of a neighbor or had attended the wrong church service, had both of her thumbs placed into a vice-like device. An incorrect answer, such as, I'm not guilty, led to the slow tightening of the vice until both thumbs were thoroughly crushed. You see, real medieval torture wasn't supposed to draw blood. It came from the Latin tortus, or twisting. A Roman court that drew blood had violated imperial law, and the medieval church still relied on some of those same traditions. Bureaucracy at its cruelest. Let's say the accused was tougher than she looked. The second step was the leg screws. I'll spare you the details, but we'll agree that it was rough on the knees. Finally, this tortured, broken, hungry woman had her hands tied behind her back. The rope around her wrists was fed into a pulley, and the suspect was hoisted off the ground, dislocating both of her shoulders. If she didn't confess, she'd be fed and washed before the process restarted three days later. I'd have confessed to anything at the mere sight of the thumbscrews, but maybe some of you have a higher pain tolerance. Salem wasn't nearly this cruel, but it did bring about the death of two dozen innocent people. It relied on an, on an inquisitorial system in which the accused had to prove innocence. Local magistrates didn't ask, did you attack these girls? Instead, they asked, why did you attack these girls? The distinction is small but significant. In Salem, just as in medieval Europe, you were guilty until proven innocent. 
The proceedings in Salem and Europe had some similarities, but the timing of this slow-moving massacre in Puritan New England is odd. European witch hunts were largely over, and had been for quite some time. Approximately 50,000 people died in Europe, but the fervor had died down after 1550. Witch hunts popped up occasionally afterwards, but most in Europe had dropped discussions of Satan for copies of Descartes. The fires had burned out across the sea, so why were they starting here? There are lots of ideas, almost all of which are impossible to know for certain. Historians take surviving documents and reconstruct the past. That's a hard enough task before we start asking questions like, but what did they really believe? It's an interesting but completely unanswerable question. I'm not even 100% sure I know what I believe. Did Tichiba really think she saw a creature with the head of a woman and two wings? Or was she looking for an answer to a question that had literally been beaten into her? Anyway, here's the list of likely reasons why things went so haywire in Salem. Number one, religious fervor. Religious spirit had waned somewhat in Salem, and there was much controversy surrounding something called the Halfway Covenant. The Halfway Covenant, in short, allowed for more people to join the church, even if they had not been properly born or baptized into it. Samuel Paris even had a hard time getting ordained as a local minister, and one of the powerful families had refused to pay him his allotment of firewood because he was deemed not sufficiently opposed to the Halfway Covenant. Puritans in New England, eager to build a city on a hill, felt their faith was under constant attack. What else could it be if not the devil and his witches? Number two, political and social upheaval. By the late 17th century, rival families fought for control of Salem. New England itself was already beginning to agitate for greater self-rule instead of British laws and regulations, and coastal Salem was well aware of both of those battles. Never underestimate the ability of petty, local fights to turn into real, legitimate, lasting conflicts. Also, it's no accident that the frustrations felt in Salem were taken out overwhelmingly on poor women, already powerless to defend themselves from husbands or a legal system that assumed their guilt. Number three, fungus. Folks in Salem ate a large quantity of rye, a particular type of grain that can play host to a fungus called ergot. Ergot contains chemicals that resemble LSD and can lead to an interesting list of symptoms, including seizures, hallucinations, digestive distress, and a sensation of your skin prickling. Sound familiar? Most of the afflicted girls were from the marshier side of town, where rye was more likely to carry ergot anyway. This may have played a more significant role than, than thought for quite some time. My preferred theory is that a handful of middle school-aged kids got a taste of power and didn't know exactly what to do with it. That might sound small compared to ancient medical systems and divine intervention, but anyone who doubts the cruelty of a middle schooler has not spent much time around a middle schooler. They're so mean. This is just how my eyebrows look. I should still be able to enjoy my Lunchable, Kelly. But in the end, it doesn't really matter if it was fungal rot, preteen tyranny, or just good old-fashioned religious hysteria that killed two dozen people 300 years ago. What matters is what this story tells us about us. It tells us that nonconformists have always faced a difficult road in this world. It tells us that we're not immune from the murderous effects of division and distrust. It tells us that we can't accept simple answers to complex questions so uncritically. Maybe the most important thing Salem showed us is that we can improve. They proved to be the last major witch trials in the modern U.S. We came to adopt a judicial system that assumes innocence and leaned into the conclusions of the Enlightenment that evidence should be rational and reproducible, not what someone says in a courtroom while they shake and yell at the sky. We've tried to improve the treatment of those outside the mainstream. 
We haven't perfected those things yet, not even close, but we're getting better.